Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human Podcast, where we have discussions aimed at creating a better world with more individual freedom and less unnecessary suffering. Today, my guest is Dr. Mary Ruert. She is a retired biomedical researcher, and now she's a libertarian speaker, writer, and activist. She has written many articles, testified in front of Congress, and written two books concerning medical freedom. One is Healing Our World, and the other is Death by Regulation. We talk about the ethical and compassionate side of libertarianism, the importance of understanding self-ownership when it comes to your health, and the idea of the separation of medicine and state. I had a great time talking with Dr. Ruert and learned a lot, and I think you will as well. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Dr. Mary Ruert, for being here today on the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Awesome, definitely. I think we uh, agree on a lot of stuff as far as self-ownership and talking about freedom in America. You've really dedicated um, a large part of your life to that and about the the seemingly radical idea of the separation of medicine and state, which I don't think is radical at all. I'm very yeah. much uh, uh, a proponent of that. But how did you get um, exposed to the ideas of liberty and self-ownership? Because a lot of people will talk about freedom, but they miss the underlying principle of self-ownership. Yes, yes. And, you know, I was first introduced to them in college when friends of mine were reading Ayn Rand. And so I read her too. And and pretty much I had one little area that I wasn't so comfortable with, um, which was, of course, the idea of helping the poor. I guess I was a closet liberal. (laughs) But then when I realized that, uh, you know, we help the poor to be loving, and it's a lot less loving to take a gun, put it to another person's head and demand that they help the poor. That's much less loving <laughs> than having them be selfish. So that's that was the final nail in the coffin, so to speak. <laughs> gotcha. Yep. I think for me, it was Ayn Rand as well. My brother, he read Atlas Shrugged in college and he's mm-hmm. like, you've got to read this book. And so um, we grew up more in the Christian conservative type of, of upbringing. And, yes. and then then there was a stretch with Ayn Rand, especially with the altruism part of it as well. Mm-hmm. But I sure. think over time, you know, we've developed it as far as thinking that libertarianism is actually a, an extremely compassionate ideology. Yes, yes. And, and, you know, on my latest edition of Healing Our World, I actually use the subtitle, The Compassion of Libertarianism, because... The wonderful thing about it is people don't need to actually have any feelings at all towards good feelings towards other people, as long as they're willing not to uh, commit aggression against them, which, of course, is the initiation of first strike force, fraud or theft. As long as they're willing to do that, it doesn't matter how loving they are. The results are as if they were loving, (laughs) which is that we have universal peace and plenty. Exactly. I think, too, that the idea of peace, people talk a lot about peace, but they don't talk about how to to obtain peace. And that's through voluntary transactions. You want you want it to be both parties are willing participants in a transaction. And that's that's the um, the place where peace exists in between the transactions. That's right. That's right. And, you know, you were talking about your Christian upbringing. I went to Catholic school for 11 years. So, of course, um, even though in college I wasn't so sure that was the way to go, um, what what was with me was the idea of loving your neighbor. I found that very practical and not just theoretical, but practical. You do it for yourself, really, in a sense, not for your neighbors. I mean, yes, they benefit, but, but um, it, it's very difficult to 
be happy when you're disconnected from everyone. So a love of neighbor or what I guess in English we would call universal love or goodwill towards all is important. And the reason it's important for libertarians to understand that is that if you don't have that, it's very easy to justify aggression, you know, a little kind of moving a little at a time. You know, for example, if I found your wallet on the, on the pavement and I'm in the place of, of loving my neighbor, um, I pick that up and go, oh, my gosh, this poor guy is <laughs> he's probably freaking out right now. So I would you know, do my best to find you and give you a wallet back. But if you're if you're not in that space, it's easy to say, oh, well, somebody didn't take good care of their property. They've abandoned it. Um, well, I'll do them a favor. I won't use their charge cards. I'll cut them up, but I'll take the money. it's very easy to start moving along that line. So I think the concept of loving one's neighbor is a very, uh, it is certainly one we should consider. And one of the things I think that Ayn Rand missed was that concept of being uh, very helpful in maintaining liberty. Yes, definitely. Um, I'm reading a lot of Carl Jung lately. I got into um, his work from Jordan Peterson's work. I'm a big fan of what they're doing, uh, what Mm -hmm. he's doing. And he talked about Carl Jung did, about the, that when people become separated, the state grows in power. And that yes. the more that we're, we're connected, the, the more that we have uh, voluntary transactions, which then doesn't give power to the state to control top-down our behavior. Yes, yes, that's very true. And, and that's why the government pits us one against the other. Right now, you know, they're having hearings in the Senate about high drug prices, and they're pointing fingers at the pharmaceutical company. And yet, what the reality is, it's the cost of getting a drug to market, which is primarily driven by FDA regulations. It, it's If you plot what we pay at the pharmacy versus what the drug companies have to pay to get FDA approval. It's a straight line, you know, like that. It's very tough. (laughs) So, um, you know, government points their fingers at other people for us to get angry with. And when we do that, we hurt ourselves because of course, if we have some kind of price controls on drugs or something, there's not going to be any more innovation as long as those regulations grow and they grow every year. So, you know, we have government creating the problem, um, having us point fingers at each other and then taking turns being victims and aggressors as the government tries to regulate each part of us. (laughs) Right. Exactly. They want to regulate everything. I think uh, that's their ultimate goal. Uh, you talked about the FDA, and I think it's vitally important. I've bashed the pharmaceutical industry. I've, I've used the term big pharma. Um, you know, I've, I think that um, personally, um, you know, I, I've gone after them for like for not supporting cannabis legalization. And now with the FDA going after Kratom, I think that's part of the, the puzzle. But I think do you th- I think it's more important that we shine the spotlight from the pharmaceutical industry to the actual regulations, the regulators, and the laws that cause that. And in your book, Death by Regulation, you talk about that, specifically the 1962 Drug Amendment Act. And to be honest, I was not familiar with that. Oh, okay. Yes, well, you're not old enough. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was was, uh, um, in my, I I think it was maybe 11 or so, um, uh, back in the days when the thalidomide crisis hit. Right. And, you know, and this was a drug that was marketed in Europe. It wasn't marketed here because the FDA had enough power to stop it. And they did not for the right reasons. They, they were worried about some other side effects, but that's okay. So what happened with thalidomide, it was a safer sleeping drug, at least for adults. You know, a lot of people were dying from barbiturate overdose, mm-hmm. accidental barbiturate overdose. And so this was supposed to be a better sleeping pill. And it was, <laughs> but the problem is it wasn't safe 
for the unborn. And one of the things that happened is when women started taking it, they found it helped their morning sickness. So then they started taking it for morning sickness and the company started advertising for that. But at that time, we weren't so aware scientifically, you know, that this was this was a potentially dangerous thing because the unborn is so sensitive to drugs, whereas adults are not. Because, of course, they're not fully developed. The, the unborn aren't fully developed. So some children were born without limbs. This caused a big ruckus. And people in the United States got very scared that this could happen to them. In fact, there were a few American babies born because the drug wasn't testing over here. Uh, they didn't, you know, the babies didn't have limbs or they died. There you know, were different side effects depending on when the mother took it. But she took it like in the first month or two of pregnancy when a lot of women didn't know they were pregnant. Mm. Anyhow, bottom line is they passed these amendments, which were kind of languishing in Congress and had been for several years. They really didn't have much to do with safety. They had more, more to do with effectiveness. And so once these things passed, it gave the FDA basically carte blanche on keeping to keeping adding regulations every year. And they have been. And so the cost of getting a drug through the approval process has risen every year. And because it's it's risen so much that only what three out of 10 drugs now even recover their development costs. So even if you get approval, <laughs> that's no guarantee that you're going to make money. And so the whole industry now is depending on blockbuster drugs. This is a very dangerous place to be because if the industry doesn't produce blockbuster drugs, they cannot cover their R&D and they're going to collapse. So this whole, it's, this whole system is, is really coming to a head. And of course, because the, the companies have to raise prices to recover their R&D, everybody's freaking out because the drug prices are so high, and they are, and that's why they are. That is the driving force. No one talks about this, including the drug companies, because the drug companies can be punished by the FDA for speaking out. And the way that happens is the FDA will drag their feet on certain approvals and other approvals will go through faster. So in other words, your competitor will be first to the market instead of you. And so drug companies have that big incentive to actually embrace these regulations and say, hey, oh yeah, yeah, of course they're great. We're protecting the public, you know, when actually they're not. Because these amendments added almost a decade to the time it takes for a drug to get from the bench, lab bench, to the marketplace, which means that people die waiting. The AIDS patients, mm. they said, we're not going to die waiting. We're going to hire black market chemists to make those drugs you're working on, pharmaceutical industry, and we're going to distribute them throughout the AIDS community. And they did. And of course, there was a very popular movie, The Dallas Buyers Club, that showed what happened to people who tried to distribute nutritional supplements and um, drugs that hadn't been approved by the FDA to the AIDS patients. They got prosecuted and persecuted. That is, it's actually a tragedy. The whole deal with the um, with the AIDS epidemic that was really an epidemic, and that I think that it's amazing that people had to do that to try to save their lives. And a big part of that is is also the Controlled Substances Act, uh, oh, the yes. DEA, and the, the war on drugs. And what yes. I found interesting from one of your blog posts is that that people are even now um, having home kits to make their own pharmaceuticals to treat certain um, drugs that aren't being addressed. That's right. That's right. You know, we passed, we, and I say we, Congress passed the right to try, which was an offshoot of this whole problem. And the right to try gives the 
patients who are terminal permission to negotiate directly with drug companies to get their drug before they're approved. Okay. But the problem is the same, as I mentioned earlier, companies are afraid that the FDA will punish them for going behind their back. They don't say that. They won't say that. <laughs> They'll deny it. <laughs> but I was in the pharmaceutical industry. I know exactly how it comes down. And um, that's what's happening to Right to Try right now. So there is another program in the works by the Heartland Institute. It's called Free to Choose Medicine. And it was similar to Right to Try, but um, actually I talked with Bart Madden, who wrote the first version of Free to Choose, and I explained to him that it had the same Achilles heel as Right to Try. And, and you know, Bart's, Bart's a really bright guy, so he changed the program to separate, have a separate track for um, Free to Choose drugs. So they have to go through the initial human safety testing and one what we call phase two study, which is kind of a mix of effectiveness and uh, safety. And then they can go in the free to choose medicine track and they never have to come out so they can be sold however the pharmaceutical company wants to do it at whichever point and because there's a lot of data mining involved with free to choose medicine you can probably will be able to compare at least this is the hope compare the two tracks mm. this isn't as good as getting rid of the amendments of course but um it's hard to actually get rid of the amendments because so much of what's in the amendments has now been in the courts. So there's case law in addition. So this might be a decent alternative, not the not the total freedom we would want, but uh, better than what we have now. <laughs> and I, the older I get, the, the more I'm pragmatic about, um, about getting as much freedom as possible, you know, as soon as possible. And I would much rather live on a seastead in the middle of the ocean and be able to do what I want, but that's really not the reality that... Uh, that we live in and with the FDA and you talk about that free to choose um, act and to have a parallel system. Do you think that's a, a gateway to allowing people to opt out of the FDA approval system? And actually, even if you don't have issues to be able to choose for yourself, what to take? It could happen that way. That's the, that's the goal. Of course, what actually will pass or if anything will pass is another question. But mm -hmm. if something like that passed, I think what would end up happening is, the FDA would have a lot of pressure on it as right. well to simplify the process. And the current commissioner is trying to do that. But the thing is, um, what I've noticed with the FDA is they, they say a lot of good things and then don't necessarily do them. Like, for example, <laughs> with um, when Right to Try was being discussed, um, one of the points that the proponents made was that it takes about 100 hours of paperwork by the doctor who doesn't have enough time, doesn't get paid for it, uh, to submit these proposals. And even though the FDA had been saying for years they were going to simplify the process, it wasn't until Right to Try really was pushing at them that they did. Uh, my understanding is the process is somewhat simplified. I don't know how much <laughs> because I haven't, you know, it's been too early to really know. But that kind of pressure changes the FDA too. So if the FDA wants to uh, be a voice in regulation um, or certification, depending on how you want to think of it, of drugs, they are going to have to do something different if something like free to choose medicine comes along. Because what will happen is free to choose medicine will have a shorter timeline. Mm -hmm. um, there won't probably won't be any safety differences. I mean, if you compare before and after the amendment, before the amendment, about two and a half percent of the drugs were eventually withdrawn from market after approval. 
after the amendments, it's like 3.3 or 3.4%. In other words, more drugs. So there's no indication that we've improved safety. Now, the reason is, you know, our science isn't good enough to predict some of the side effects. We, you know, animal studies help us, but they aren't perfect. You know, we're human beings, we're different than animals. So our biochemistry is different. And when we test in humans, we have a relatively small number of people. And of course, to see an effect, you try to make sure your populations in the control group and the treated group are uniform. So again, we're limiting what, you know, what kind of testing we're doing. So when it gets to the market, people that eat differently, have genetic diversities, things like this, they take these drugs and they react in a different way than we would predict. It's just the way it is. A drug powerful enough to heal you has the power to hurt you. And we can't always predict the people that they're going to hurt. Our science just isn't good enough. So adding this 10 years of studies did nothing for safety. And that's pretty sad because what it did is had people die waiting. I calculate about 15 million Americans died waiting. That's more than, that's more people dying than were dying in all the wars since our country's founding. That's a pretty hefty number. And the loss of innovation as companies move from research and put all their money into development of the few compounds they can develop. I mean, that loss of innovation probably triples that number. Wow. That's something you never, you really never hear about is, is the number of people who could have been saved uh, that's right. because of regulation. And that's why I think you wrote death by regulation. Is that correct? Was that one of yes. your inspirations? That's right. Yes. And, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because each of us are affected by this in some way, because it's not just the impact on drugs, it's the impact on prevention that the FDA has. So what the FDA says is you can't make a therapeutic claim for like a vitamin. So when we found out in the early 80s, for example, that folic acid could prevent spinal bifida and other horrific birth defects, the FDA wouldn't allow folic acid manufacturers to educate the public. You know, if a woman takes folic acid in the early days of her pregnancy, she can prevent these horrible things. But instead, uh, it wasn't really until the mid-90s, after many battles, that folic acid manufacturers were able to mention this important fact. So in the meantime, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 25,000 American babies were born with these horrible birth defects. Many more were aborted because you can test for it in utero. Mm. So what this means is that we got the American thalidomide from the very regulations that were intended to prevent it. Wow. Yeah, that's not something you hear on the nightly news. No, no. And each of us, so so because the prevention has been really held back as well, uh, you know, we probably each of us lost five to 10 years of our lives to these regulations, each of us. And that means the president, <laughs> Congress, the FDA commissioner, <laughs> and all the FDA employees as well. So I'm hoping that by sharing this information, people will say, oh, yeah, we're all, all going to be better off if we can really either streamline the regulatory process or have something else in place like certification that, you know, will, will be useful in telling the consumer if, and doctors if the drug is safe and effective without going through all of this red tape and, and killing all these people. And in your book, that's a great point because I think certification, if we go back to like the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, I think that you talk about lives lost unnecessarily all of the people with the the so-called opioid crisis 
the uh, I think it's really an overdose crisis personally with black market drugs. And if 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 we had just stuck with that, I think the regulations would have saved you know hundreds of thousands of people on top of that as well. It could be the data. You know, I wasn't able to mine data for that, so I wasn't mm -hmm. able to say that definitively. But there's been so many studies done in recent years on drugs, how, how many lives they save, how many people they kill, because, you know, there are some horrific side effects and uh, what the balance is. And and while these are hard things to measure and nothing's no measurement is perfect, I think the data is very compelling mm -hmm. that the regulations are quite literally overkill. And that they, while they demand that drugs be safe and effective, the regulations themselves uh, really have no evidence to support that they are. <laughs> Excellent. It, that's a great point. And I was really blown away with your idea that regulations are human experimentation. And yes. that's, that's, that blew my mind because I've read a lot about a lot of different things, but I've never come across that idea. Was that yours or did you find that from somewhere else? No, actually, that's kind of mine. Um, you know, I chair an IRB, which is um, an institutional review board. What we do is we look at the informed consents that people get when they enter drug trials. We make sure that they're told important things, like they can quit at any time. Right. <laughs> so, you know, so they can opt out, right? Well, you know, this is what the AIDS patients were doing. Um, they were operating against the law, but the FDA was smart enough not to go after them when they were organized in California, they went after them here in Texas because they weren't organized, you know. So uh, when they're organized, they can get out the word of how bad this is. Cancer patients sued the FDA, initially won. The FDA asked the courts to re-review. They did and decided that, no, Americans have no right to save their lives with unapproved drugs. And that's what Right to Try, that's how Right to Try got started. It was essentially the cancer lawsuit in a different form. So... Um, you know, people want people want access when they when they're really desperate. They want access. Um, but you know, obviously, as a IRB chair, I have to be um, sensitive too to the fact this is a vulnerable population. You know, they're desperate, so you have to be kind of careful. But on the other hand, ultimately, what what my job is as an IRB chair is to make sure that, in spite of all these nuances that we honor the person's choice to a large extent. And it's this principle, it's this principle that really is based on the, the ethics or lack of ethics that we saw in the Nazi experimentation of humans. And so when we pass a regulation, you know, we are actually experimenting on people. If, you know, we're, we're denying them drugs on the assumption <laughs> that future patients are going to be helped. And this, you know, if we saw this in my board, we would say, no, you can't do that. That's actually against the, <laughs> it's against the regulations that were put in place to protect people. But they only apply to the private sector, you see. <laughs> right, exactly. So I'd like to see them apply to the public sector. And most ethicists, uh, you know, they ask the question, how much regulation should we have? They don't ask the question, should we have any regulation at all? This is where liberty-minded people, whether they call themselves libertarians or not, um, really, in my opinion, are more expert. They have asked the tough questions. And um, it's actually not too hard to get into the ethics realm today.
There are colleges that have programs, although you don't even really have to have those kind of credentials, for example, to be on an IRB, you know, the Institutional Review Board that I'm talking about. And I think if, if libertarians thought in terms of ethics and formulated their arguments in terms of that, I think we might actually be heard better just because that's a big deal today. Yeah, I would agree definitely on that. And that's a great point about getting involved maybe in areas where where libertarians usually don't think about, like in the realm of ethics, in the realm of actually sitting on boards and determining, hey, maybe we don't need this and look at the actual consequences of choice because the way that politics works is that you pass a law and then the politician is never held responsible for the, right. the results of those laws. That's right. And we need to start doing that a little more. We need to have more accountability. And actually, we're getting it to some extent because the nonprofit uh, libertarian groups are and liberty minded groups. I don't want to leave anyone out who doesn't like to be identified as a libertarian. Sure. Um, you know, those groups are doing studies that really show how bad these regulations are. And um so, so that's the wonderful thing about that is the evidence is on the side of freedom. And that's what we need to put forward and point out. And also the, the mindset that generate these regulations are usually coming from a good place. Mm -hmm. So if they see that bad results are happening, I think we can, I think we can turn things around. And that's why I wrote by regulation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do agree about coming from the same place. I think there are people like, I think 3% of the populations are psychopaths personally. And I think they <laughs> aggregate towards positions of power, but everybody else is coming from the same place. They want people to live the fullest life possible for as long as they can sure. with the least amount of suffering. I think, I think we can all agree. Hopefully we can all agree upon that. Yeah. Yes, yes let's say let's say the vast majority can agree. Exactly. Yes. yes, that's and that's why that's why I have hope. You know, we can if we can demonstrate that liberty is the way. I think we'll have it. <laughs> I agree, and I think that um, medicine affects everybody so much. And the idea of self ownership, you would talk about ethics. You know, self ownership for me, um, I come from the natural rights tradition that we have inherent natural rights yes. that because you are born because of God or your nature or because you have a, a unique consciousness or personality or however people want to phrase that is that you are a unique individual with inherent rights. Do mm -hmm. you, are you from that tradition or do you argue the ethics from another standpoint? Well, I guess I, you know, I, as I said, I started from a Randian standpoint, Okay, but I also, it was also obviously colored as I explained earlier by my, uh, Catholic background, mm -hmm. especially the part about loving your neighbor. I found that to be a very positive influence in my life. I found I benefited probably more than the person <laughs> that I was loving because, it, it, you know, when you when you don't love, you're you're creating that separation we talked about earlier. And uh, a story that your listeners might enjoy on this is that I was talking once I had an opportunity to spend a little time with a person who did a lot of the propaganda for government. <laughs> and um, what happened was I could see this person wasn't happy. And instead of asking that right off, I, I asked what his goals in life were. And he said power and money. Okay. And he had both. Yeah. I mean, at first I thought he was joking. You know, I, I wouldn't have that answer. But uh, then when I realized he was serious and that he already had power and money, I said, well, what do you think would make you happy? And he said, well, I think to be happy, 
I would need to feel more connected to humankind. And I don't. And it took years for me to really realize what I was hearing. Because what I was hearing, I believe, is that our happiness depends to some extent on our connectedness with our fellow humans. I think we're built that way genetically. Mm-hmm. We're a social animal. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So, so to be happy, we have to feel connected. But if you are always lying to someone and trying to have them work against their own best self-interests, obviously you're feeling separate from them. I mean, you have to feel separate from them to even do that to them. Right. So, so you're creating all the separation. And if you're doing it on a big scale, you're creating separation from the whole human race, basically. And so I I wish I'd known more at that time. I might've been able to develop that conversation a little bit, but I didn't. But thinking about that, I I realized that we really do uh, need to not aggress against our neighbor, not just for their sake, but for our own sake, because as soon as we try to get our goals through aggression, any goal we're trying to get is the goal that we think is going to take us to happiness. And if we use aggression as our means, we've already destroyed the happiness we're seeking. (laughs) So I think once that recognition is established in our world, I think people will recognize that it's actually long-term against their best interest to aggress. And that's when I think we're going to see some real change. I do too. I think it's an emotional issue. I do. I think that fundamentally everybody thinks, every human being thinks in religious terms. And I think that when when you take away a person's God, you replace it with something else. And so that gentleman, he he, he got rid of the Judeo-Christian tradition that we, we all benefit from, even if we don't believe in Jesus or God, that he replaced it with the state. And I think the state is being seen as the God for a lot of people nowadays. Yes. Yes. And that makes it hard for them sometimes to think in terms of the state as an aggressor, Mm -hmm. just like a child does not want to think that their parents that are abusing him or her um, are really don't love him in the way that we think of love because he or she wants to believe that the love is there. Same with a battered wife. She wants to believe her spouse loves her. And and so she kind of overlooks the indications that that love isn't there in the way that one would normally think of it. And in a healthful way, maybe we could say it that way. So, so it's very hard for people to realize that their God, the state, <laughs> isn't uh, protecting them. Yeah, it's actually hurting them um, on a lot of deeper levels as well. I think we're seeing, like Jung Jung talked about a lot of these issues where I never thought about them on a psychological term, that if you, um, he talks a lot about the consciousness and subconsciousness, and that when they're in conflict, you know, you have terrible things that happen, and that can reflect in society as well. Yes, yes, that's right, that's right. And I, I think we're seeing a, a lot of that going on. Well, in your in your book, you, you talk about death by regulation, but you also have a book called Healing Our World. Now, mm-hmm. that's the one, is that the one where you lay out your ethics about libertarian compassion? Or, or what do you cover in that one? Well, okay, so you have to understand, and I think you'll especially appreciate this particular story. Uh, I, was, I was kind of a Randian libertarian for many years. And one day I'm sitting and reading about foreign policy, our foreign policy, and realizing that it's doing just the opposite of what people think it does. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting there thinking about that, and all of a sudden, um, I guess I had what, uh, I don't know anything to call it, but revelation. 
you know, it was, I, I saw all the pieces falling together, the Judeo-Christian tradition, the desire that liberals have for a peaceful and prosperous world, uh, the idea of non-aggression as we've been talking about it. it. It all came together in a, I don't want to say a picture because it wasn't visual, but a knowing. There was a knowing of how all these pieces fit together. And this is what I wanted to convey in healing our world. Because you know at that time, libertarians were mostly atheistic and they actually scorned the Christians that would come in, which was really crazy, <laughs> for believing in in um, what they felt was um, an unreasonable uh, entity. <laughs> right. And I've and, been there too, as far as agnosticism and, you know, yes, that's, that's kind of the world I live in. But at the same time, I think what Jordan Peterson is doing, he's bringing a lot of the uh, archetypal importance of Christianity for a lot of people who may have left it with atheism and ag agnosticism. And, um, I think it's great that you were that you had that connection even back then. Yes. So anyhow, I wanted to convey this knowledge, but I didn't have a framework to do it. I tried to do some videos, but they just didn't have the depth. So I decided to write a book. I'd never written a book before. Didn't have a clue as to what I was doing. But my sister Marty was was very helpful because even though I couldn't communicate it quite in English to her. We were connected enough that she knew exactly where I was going. And she was a very big help because as I, I'd write pages and pages and send them to her and they'd come back with lots of red ink, you know, the tone isn't right, the flow isn't good. You know, she, she wrote books for um, computer people uh, to learn how to use software. So she had, she had to know that flow. So it was great. It was a great collaboration. And then shortly after the book was published, uh, Marty uh, had was diagnosed with um, cancer of the GI tract, and and um, we actually then experienced a lot of these medical problems uh, with regulation. Mm -hmm. I remember one day I was I, I went to visit her in the hospital, and she was she was okay. They you know they had a little machine she could press to pain get pain. Yep. Yeah. So I figured it was okay for me to leave for a half an hour to get some dinner, right? So I did that, and I came back, and she's in agony. And they had just changed the bag, the drip bag, with the pain medication before I left. So I quickly figured out that the dose was wrong somehow. Mm -hmm. But the, the nurses would not give her more pain medication until the doctor was contacted, which actually took an hour. I'm sitting there clicking every time I can. Uh, to get as much into her as possible, but she's just in agony. And I had to talk to the pharmacist and, and everything. They had to remake the drug and they gave it to her. Of course, finally she was okay. But, you know, we had to go through all this rigmarole because of the regulation. She had to sit there and suffer uh, until all the paperwork was done and people were tracked down because this was evening, obviously, uh, things like that. And then, of course, she wanted, she was, um, because she had a tumor inside her gut. She was vomiting a lot. We went to her doctor and asked for cannabis uh, or actually, um, you know, the um, THC, which was a, a pharmaceutical product at that time. Mm -hmm. But he didn't want to give it to her because there was so much paperwork for him if he did, wow. you know. And so this we so we experienced a lot of the medical regulation firsthand. And uh, then she finally decided, well, you know, in fact, she actually decided this before she even had her diagnosis. She said, Mary, if this is cancer, I'm not going to 
I'm not going to go through all this suffering because we have a lot of cancer in our family. We've mm. seen it. She said, I want you to take me to Dr. Kaborkian, who, of course, was doing assisted suicides at that time. And um, that's eventually what happened. But even getting Dr. Kaborkian to help us was difficult because, of course, it was against the law in Michigan. <laughs> right. And, and, and just, I mean, we just went through one thing after another experiencing this firsthand. And so in the later editions of Healing Our World, there's a chapter at the end called Marty's Story, uh, which, you know, um, is sad in a way, but happy in another. And it's happy in another because after all this happened, uh, a lot of the reporters said, you know, the families never talk to us. So people have a bad uh, idea of what Dr. Kaporkin's doing. And I knew Marty would want me to share her story. So I did. And it felt like we were still working together. So that was very healing for me. Wow. Well, I'm sorry you guys had to go through all that. It's that's a that's a powerful story because it, it touches on the personal side of regulations that that there is there's already suffering in the world and and suffering is never going to go away and what we do to help others suffer less I think is is vitally important you know not just for not the just for the people suffering but the people who have to watch them suffering yes. I, I've, I've been sick for 30 years I've been in and out of the hospital I've had uh, my colon removed at the age of at, at the age of twelve, and so I've had twenty surgeries, fifty hospital stays, hundreds of doctors' visits, and I've been in the same place. I've been in that bed when my pain pump was not working after surgery, and if anybody has not experienced that pain, they just have no idea about how you can be mentally, emotionally, physically destroyed by pain. Yes. And, and I think the, the, the whole thing, one of the reasons why I started the Chronically Human podcast is to talk about these issues because especially with the opioid crisis going on and the regulations that are, that are flowing out of that, and there's millions of people that are being hurt and suffering unnecessarily, and the people who think they're not affected by that, you know, the, that family is horribly affected by that. And then how they interact with other people in society, then it's affected as well. So it's a cascading effect. That's right. That's right. So to protect a few people from themselves, which never works anyhow, right. <laughs> we're hurting people that really are total innocents. Yes, it's very horrible. Definitely. And with your sister and, um, you know, have, being forced to go to like Dr. Kevorkian, um, would you prefer that, that we had other alternatives to that? Because it was against the law at the time. You That's could right. have been held responsible, couldn't you? In theory, yes. Um, um, Dr. Kevorkian's lawyer did work with us and assured us that, you know, that's the, the, the authorities weren't going after the families, and wisely so, because right. I think it would have been a media nightmare for them. Exactly. Uh, certainly it would have been my case. I would have spoken out. But the problem is, of course, Dr. Kevorkian ended up going to jail for many years and was only let out when he was so sick that they just didn't want to deal with him, you know, so that's very sad. Now, there are, of course, a couple states, um, I think it's Oregon and Washington, if I'm not mistaken, that do allow assisted suicide. And I have to say, that's a much better choice for a family if their loved one wants to do it that way. Because Marty and I were talking, for example, about alternatives. What if Dr. Kevorkian wouldn't take her or ended up in jail before she was uh, able to access his services. And we were talking about, well, should she shoot herself? 
Well, if she did and I was there to make sure she did a good job, then I could be held liable and she didn't want that. But if I walked out the door and she shot herself and was suffering, that's not good either. So what do we do? I mean, so in addition to losing the loved one, you are in a position where you have to make these horrific evaluations. And when I started talking about this after Marty's death, I can't tell you the number of people who came up to me and said, yes, my mother or my sister or my brother were begging me, begging me to overdose me and kill me because they couldn't, they couldn't handle the pain, you know, and it is horrific pain. You've experienced it, you know, um, I've had a touch of it (laughs) when I had whiplash and uh, yes, it's, it's horrible. I mean, you can easily see how, how it drives people insane to have that kind of pain and, and to wish it on someone to create laws that make it hard for people to get pain medication. I mean, it just, it, it's totally backwards of the way we should be dealing with this. I agree. And I think it goes back to your idea um, about regulations being human experimentation and even with its roots in Nazism, to be honest with you, because with Operation Paperclip, we don't... We don't shy away from conspiracies here on the Chronically Human podcast. So, you know, with Operation Paperclip, thousands of Nazis actually, scientists were brought back into the United States that went into the pharmaceutical industry, went into the medicine, psychiatry. And so I think there might be a holdover of of those ideas that are still a part of our system. That could be. Because actually, you know, prior to World War II, I mean, we had regulations, obviously, but it wasn't until after that that we've really ramped up. And the idea is that we're, the citizenry is too stupid to make decisions. But, exactly. you know, in medical cases especially, it's crazy because you're telling me a bureaucrat in Washington knows better than the doctor and the patient? No. Uh-uh. <laughs> People are very individual in their medical needs and in the way they respond to even the same disease or the same drug. So this is a decision that needs to be made at the very local level of the individual. <laughs> it's funny how all, a lot of people um, on the political left or progressive, they're all about buying local, right? They want to buy locally from their farmer. They want to you know, have local businesses do well, but at the same time, they don't want individuals to be able to choose for themselves at the most local level about how to determine how they live their life. Yeah, it's a disconnect. Um, and this is this is where we we have a way to work with people like that because once you realize that you want freedom in one particular area, mm-hmm. it's easier to move into the other areas. And that's something I think the Liberty movement has not, they haven't capitalized on that very well. You know, there's a lot of people out there who are very mad at the FDA, for example, sure. because it's of all this business about squashing prevention, right? And we haven't really invited them into our folds in, in the proper <laughs> way, in my opinion. But there's a lot of people out there who get it at one level. Mm-hmm. And so those are the people that we should be talking to because then it's an easier transition to other levels. I do agree. And I think the medical freedom is something that's, that affects everybody at one time or another. Everybody's going to be sick and everybody's going to die. And so that's the right. idea that we want to have every tool at our disposable at our disposal to live the best life with the least amount of suffering. I think everybody, like like we talked about, can agree on that. And, and I've been coming up with an idea lately about the future friends of freedom, the idea that, you know, politics has gotten to the point where people are attacking individuals personally. And I think principles and ideas are really where we can, um, we can make headway. But even 
you know, during World War One and World War World War Two, there were um, there were laws, you know, for war. And I think that idea with political discussions might be a good idea to have a Geneva Convention for uh, political <laughs> discussions. I think that would be interesting to see. Yeah, it would be. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, um, what are you, what are you working on right now, uh, Dr. Rohr? Are you still focused on death by regulation? Are you getting the word out about that? Is that where your your main goal is right now? Yes, I'm trying to. Uh, we have um, a hearing coming up in the Senate next week, uh, Tuesday, where they're going the second time. They're going to be talking to people about drug prices. They've invited citizen comments, so they got some from me. <laughs> I'm actually going to be sending out, uh, actually today, uh, my comments to the CEOs of the pharmaceutical companies that are going to be attending that meeting. Who knows what will happen? Um, I've, I've found that when I've, I have approached, I have approached the White House a couple times and found they've shuttled me to people who, as soon as they hear it's about regulation, they don't want to hear it. Because it's almost like regulation is supposed to be, uh, you just don't question it, you know, you don't question it. But hopefully uh, the material I've sent on will help them do that. And actually there are people who are working on the whole problem from the uh, side of the healthcare regulations, which, you know, we've talked a little bit about with the pain medication. And um, Dr. Kyle Varner, who is on the board of Liberty International with me, he is going to be writing a book. I think right now his title is um, uh, The White Coat Mafia or something around like that. that. And he's, he's talking about, uh, you know, these regulations and, of course, how they limit the number of doctors, which is what they do. Uh, and um, we can talk more about that if we have time. I don't know how our time is. Uh, so Limiting healthcare. So, you know, it used to be in this country, there was no regulation of healthcare providers. So anyone could call themselves a doctor and treat people. And people usually used referral to see if the person was any good. Right. <laughs> but then what happened in the early 1900s is there was a study done. Um, and the study was done, I'm sure, uh, as a way of getting ready to regulate medicine to look at all the medical schools and they decided that half the medical schools weren't good enough. Uh, all the ones that taught women, for example, <laughs> and most of the ones that taught blacks, but then they kind of said, well, wait, we need a couple, we need a couple medical schools for uh, blacks because we don't want white physicians treating black people. So we'll leave a couple of them in there. And, and then because each state, they lobbied each state to pass um, regulations saying that a medical board had to approve each person who wanted to call themselves doctor. And they used this report called the Flexner Report to basically convince all of the medical boards that only if you had training at these approved schools could you get an MD. Could you be considered a doctor? And there were other requirements as well. And of course, the schools that they didn't agree with were alternative schools as well. <laughs> so the number of doctors plummeted. And it wasn't really until the 1960s that the number of doctors per patient ratio came up again. Hmm. But by that time, we had so many new technology things uh, that a doctor could access that really doctors did so much more. So that was not enough <laughs> and still isn't enough. 
And so what's been happening is we're sort of importing doctors from other countries to to help make up that deficit. But normally they don't have all the same privileges as a regular doctor does. Um, we have physician assistants now, which we never had, nurse practitioners, which we never had before. It's because the overload is so great that they're finally letting go of some of the easier things that doctors, you had to be a doctor to do. Now, you know, I, I went to school during the Vietnam era. Uh, we had people coming back from Vietnam that had done brain surgery on the battlefield. Uh, and these people came back, uh, went to went under the GI Bill to college and medical school. But in the meantime, they couldn't even barely, you know, they couldn't even draw blood. <laughs> you know, this is crazy. Uh, because in the Army and Navy and other military branches, they do what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. But you can't do that on the outside. <laughs> So it, it's a it's you know we have this dual system going on, which is also kind of you know if if it's if it's a regulation that you're applying to the populace, why aren't you applying it to the military? Well, of course the reason is the military wouldn't put up with it, and rightly so. And right. maybe the populace shouldn't put up with it either. Because they're, so, they're all about practical practical issues because they have to get the job done and exactly. save the person and do what needs to be done. Yes, yes. But by limiting the number of doctors, the, the goal, and they said it in JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, which is the big trade journal of, of, of the uh, American Medical Association, they said right out, we're doing this because we need birth control for doctors so that we can get higher salaries. I mean, they were quite blatant about it. And I reference all this in Healing Our World. I, I tell the story there. And, you know, it's interesting because we were talking earlier about Healing Our World. And when I first started Healing Our World, I thought it was a book on theory. Because, you know, my knowledge, I mean, the knowledge I got with this revelation was of the theory, not of the practicality. I thought, I'll put a couple practical uh, examples in my book. Well, then all of a sudden, (laughs) I realized as the stuff kind of came to me, I mean, I just found things kind of was, you know, (laughs) it was just an incredible experience to have all these things coming into my lap by different routes that that basically everything that libertarians want to see happen have happened at one time in history in a different country perhaps and it's all been tried and found to be quite good <laughs> so then healing turned into uh, the largest compilation of how liberty works in the real world and i think it still holds that uh, position well, fantastic. I, I, I can't wait to read it. I've not read it yet, but I'm definitely going to get that. That's, that. That is something that I think needs to be done is to look at the real world effects of the ideas that we propose. Because, exactly. Yeah, because I, I believe in individual freedom, but at the same time, other people, when they hear individual freedom, they think it's freedom to aggress against them. I think that's, that's, right. I think that's the, because Stalin talked about freedom all the time. You know, yes. and, and different people have a different definition of freedom, but to see it in action, I think, is a good way to help define it. Yes, yes. Well, actually, you know, political freedom historically has been freedom from government aggression. Right. <laughs> so it, it's, it's, you know, it's not freedom to do what you want, which is how many people interpret it. It's not freedom to aggress against your neighbor. It's freedom from government aggression. That's what the American Revolution was all about. Definitely. And going back to your first book, about a lot of people, they like myself, I've done this, uh, go after pharmaceutical companies. But at the same time, 
the FDA is positioned to be the white knight out there protecting everybody. What if regulation gets pulled back? How are consumers going to be protected? Um, personally, I think that the market will take care of that consumer choice. But what is your opinion on the people who say that we need the FDA, we actually need more regulations, and we can't allow big corporations to do whatever they want because that actually hurts us in the, in the long run? Yes. Well, of course, one of the reasons we have big corporations, especially in the drug industry today, is that it's such a big hit if the FDA doesn't approve a drug after they've spent the $2.5 billion mm -hmm. <laughs> that they have to merge and they have merged in order to stay solvent. So, so that's one of the things. And, and also um, I won't go into the details now I do in death by regulation, but there were some very, uh, there were some things that happened in the early days of the 62 amendments that the drug industry felt were, were very unfair and rightly so. Um, so, so I think the ethics that was, was there before the amendments and the way that pharmaceutical companies operated are considerably different than what they do today. Mm -hmm. Because now FDA approval rather than reputation is what people look at. And back then, reputation was all important. Companies actually advertised things like our our product hasn't caused the same side effects as this other product. <laughs> you know, they, they were quite blatant about the fact that they were all about safety. Right. And, and of course now, because FDA approval is the gold standard, doctors and patients really don't notice if the compound or the new drug comes from a particular pharmaceutical company mm -hmm. as much as they did back then. So reputation was very important. And, there were a number of groups that actually tested drugs. You know, the FDA doesn't test any drugs. They ask the drug companies to do particular studies, and then the drug companies send in the results of these studies. So, but there were third-party testing back then, which is a better way to go. And what I envision, if we deregulated, is companies would go to third parties to have them tested. And they, if the company that was doing the testing liked the drug, they'd give it their either seal of approval or probably more likely a document of what's good and bad about these drugs, mm -hmm. kind of like a consumer's report, right? right? Drug companies would probably pay for a number of these evaluations and doctors and consumers would go to the source they felt was most reliable. <laughs> Just like if you're buying a new software program, you might go to a computer magazine whose reviews of software has always, you know, been good. So you could you could do that with drugs. Drugs are a little more complicated. There's no doubt about it. But that's what would probably happen. And also what would happen is there'd be more competition. Right now, the competition's limited by the high cost of getting a drug, a drug approval. So when you have more competition, prices go down. <laughs> also, you have more science going on. You know, we're wasting so much money. Instead of doing science, we're checking regulatory boxes. You know, having been in the industry, I understand that really well. We, are on, we were on the cusp in the 1960s of having a golden age of health. And these regulations destroyed it. We were learning so much about vitamins and how to stay healthy. Well, of course, once the amendments passed, <laughs> you couldn't talk about those things, just like we were explaining in the folic acid story. And 
Um, also, we were starting to get a lot of new drugs that were really important advances. Well, a lot of that stopped, too, because now companies had to take 10 years longer to get a drug to market. And because of the extra cost of that, they simply couldn't do as much research as they used to do. So that was a big negative. Uh, you know, we were just learning about DNA. I was in high school when, you know, Watson and Crick were writing a, a book about molecular biology of the gene. You know, it was really, really exciting. But again, all this stuff was slowed down. And today, stem cell research, which is probably the next big avenue of treatment, has been has, has uh, largely has been driven offshore mm -hmm. by the FDA. So and I could go into some detail on that. But I do all that in death by regulation. So if somebody wants to learn, they can get the details there or we can have another session on your show. <laughs> that would be great. I would love to have you back on. But yes. before we, um, we're getting close on time here, I know we talked about about an hour. But before we go, um, can you talk about the idea of separation of medicine and state? I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea of, you know, separation of church and state. But uh, they're not familiar with the idea that government maybe doesn't have a place in telling you what you can or can't ingest into your body. Yes. Well, this is a principle of self-ownership that you referred to at the beginning of the show. If you own your own body, then you are the one who gets to decide what gets put into it, what exercise it gets, how much sleep it gets, whatever. And when government takes that right away from you, it's really telling you that, hey, you don't own yourself at least in this aspect, and especially in the area of vaccines, you know, where, where, of course, you would expect big side effects because it's a biological product. They have more side effects. And people are saying, well, I, I don't want to be vaccinated. I don't want my child to be vaccinated. And then we can have a big discussion about this, of course, too. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, when, when the government says you must be vaccinated, and in Texas here, our governor wanted to make sure every girl got one of these, uh, you know, uh, vaccines against uh, cervical cancer. Uh, and constitutionally, that didn't work out for him. So gladly. Uh, but, you know, when you can, when the, doc, when the, when the uh, regulators can tell you what you can and cannot put in your body, to the extent that they do that, they're taking away self-ownership and they're taking away years of your life in many cases. So this is really this is really a matter of life and death. And definitely, self ownership is so important because the it, it also fosters responsibility. It fosters innovation. It fosters the ability to think critically. And all of these things I think have gotten dulled down over the years. Uh, we can definitely talk about compulsory schooling, you know, <laughs> and all of those other issues. That because I think the um, the self ownership issue is most apparent with medicine, though. And I think yes. there's millions of people right now with the chronic pain world who are getting, um, I, I don't mean a taste of, I hate to, to say that, but being exposed to the idea that there's people in office or people in power who don't want them to, uh, to exercise their freedom of choice. Yes, that's right. That's right. And, and they do it in the guise of protecting them, which is like adding insult to injury. Definitely. And you had a great point. You said that a lot of this regulation stems from the idea that people in power think that we're too stupid to make our own choices. And, That's right. And I think a lot of that has to do with the schooling, maybe. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> but uh, that's something we could definitely talk about. Now, yeah. you're, you're, you're still working on getting the word out about death by regulations. What, what do you think about for your next book, or have you thought about that? 
Yes, I'd like to do, well, I've got two books in mind. One is uh, Take Off on This Ethical Concept. I'd like to do a book called Is Regulation Ethical? Oh, nice. Basically making, you know, it would be it would be referring a lot to death by regulation, but also other um, ideas that, that show that regulation is actually a violation, an ethical violation of our autonomy. Mm-hmm. That's and, great. Uh, yeah, invite, you know, basically challenge ethicists who, talk about how much regulation we need, but never ask the tough question. <laughs> Do we, you know, should we have it at all? <laughs> is, now, it bio, in, is it a uh, In your work, when you were in the pharmaceutical world, was there a lot of people who ha- who shared the libertarian type of views or the freedom type of views of self-ownership and individualism? Or, or was it a lot of people who wanted to use the force of government to force people to buy their product? <laughs> well, um, in the early days, uh, because I, I'm talking late 70s, early 80s. There, I mean, there were libertarians in the company. In fact, Cheryl Lauchs, who was the one who kind of got me into the party itself, uh, you know, and had me run for office and, and uh, really helped educate me in the principles of liberty uh, beyond Rand. Uh, she was at Upjohn as well. And then when I, but when we started, of course, back then, libertarian wasn't a word, household, I guess, today. But by the time I left in the mid-90s, I had a lot of people coming up to me saying, oh, yeah, I voted for you. Oh, yeah, that was a good talk you gave the other day. <laughs> so that was good. So I think I, I moved some people. Um, I had a chance to talk with eminent domain with some of the management because Upjohn was going to uh, if they supported this boondoggle, we're going to get land by eminent domain as a result. And of course, I, I was one of the people opposing it uh, publicly. <laughs> I was called in and uh, told, don't you know Upjohn will benefit from this? I said, yes, but Upjohn's an ethical company and eminent domain's unethical. So if we're going to stay ethical, we need to not accept that. <laughs> well, that is awesome. That's, you know, a lot of people view from the outside world about folks that are in pharmaceutical companies that um, they don't have conversations like that. So I'm glad <laughs> at least one, one place in one time that, that did occur. So I'm, I'm very yes, well, I have to admit, Upjohn was an exceptional company. I realize it more every day <laughs> when I hear what other pharmaceutical companies are doing sometimes. But, uh, you know, that was what it was like before the regulations really came in. I think what happened is because stockholders and, and management were so frustrated by some of the things that the FDA did that they considered totally power grabs and totally unethical, you know, when that happens, you tend to fight fire with fire. And I think maybe some of the people who were brought in or given power in the pharmaceutical companies might not have had the same ethical viewpoints that they had had earlier. That's I don't know point. that for sure, but that's kind of my sense of things. Well, sometimes when you go fight against monsters, you become a monster yourself. So that is always the danger. You know, that is always it's one of the dangers with libertarians running for office if they get elected. Now, what? How did they handle that? That's exactly right. And what we talked about is the more of a pragmatic view. The older I get, the more I think that you know, um, engaging in the political system is. I think what you're doing is great work because you're setting the bar on the other side because we have a lot of discussion right now about universal health care and that government should control everything, that every, Medicare for everyone. I think mm-hmm. it's good that, that you're setting the bar on the other side and said, hey, wait a minute, maybe we should not uh, be going down that route. Yeah. Yeah, so fantastic work. So I really appreciate you being on the show. 
Dr. Rohr, where can people find more about you, your work? Because I think the more people that hear your story and that hear your approach to this from a compassionate point of view is really a great way to share the ideas of liberty with more people. Where can they find your work? Well, the best way is to go to my website, ruart.com. That's R-U-W-A-R-T.com. And there you also can find links to my YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and all of that. So that'll help you out. Fantastic. Good deal. What would you like to leave our audience with, uh, Dr. Ruart, about the future of freedom in America or specifically what individuals can do to advocate for more liberty and more freedom in the sphere of medicine? Well, as, as you read more and learn more, the calling that you have will become apparent, and just as it was for me. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, just even talking to neighbors has a big, big impact. So never, you know, never think that it doesn't help. You know, most people have to hear things seven times before they, the light bulb goes off. So, so you know, it, it, just be one of those seven times. It's all you need to do. That's fantastic advice. I do think that we undervalue the individual relationships about how we can influence others. And the more that Mm -hmm. we understand the concepts, the more that we can share them. So uh, I think everybody should go get your books, check them out, because I think you have a unique take on medical freedom. And I think that's going to be a huge, um, a huge push in the next few years as more and more freedom is destroyed. People are going to look for alternatives to what we currently have. That's right. It's a matter of life and death, and that's what's going to get them moving on this. That's a great way to wrap this up. Thank you for being on the show. Really enjoyed our conversation. Love to have you back anytime. Yes, thank you. Awesome. And thanks, everybody, for watching. And check out Dr. Mary Ruert's books and get those Death by Regulation and Healing Our World because I think that there's a lot of solutions and a lot of ideas that we need to get sharing out there. Thank you very much. See you next time.